Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with the review of the recently concluded COP28 climate meeting. Then for our peace bucket, Moses Nagel gives a report on the recent Palestinian rights forum by Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace that provoked local efforts to block it. Then we hear a report from the Capital District launch of the Unemployment Bridge Program by the Columbia County Sanctuary Movement. After that, we hear about a recent federal commitment to rapidly replace all lead pipes in America's water system. And finally, we hear words of peace and justice that were spoken at the sanctuary's recent candlelight candle lighting event at Freedom Square. But first, the Times Union reports that the planned conversion of the Wyndham Ski Center in Greene County to a luxury high-priced resort high-priced resort has many local businesses concerned as they worry that the number of skiers and therefore shoppers will dramatically decrease. Membership of the resort will cost $175,000. The Daily Gazette has reached an agreement to purchase the Register Star in Columbia County and the Daily Meal in Greene County. One factor in the sales is that high gas prices have put the strain on the cost of distributing the papers. The Times Union reports that the College of St. Rose has told its bondholders that a major factor in its financial collapse was the assumption that its 2021 enrollment would almost immediately bounce back to pre-coronavirus pandemic levels. Just two years prior, the school had welcomed its second largest ever first year class. Applications and enrollment, which had fallen in 2020, uh, cratered by 63 percent over the next two years from the two, 2019 highs. Well, and at a poor use of this revenue, the Time Junior reports that Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy has for the second time this year vetoed a recently adopted $109 million budget for next year that allocated $2.5 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds to help offset a deficit in the city's trash collection fund. The city faces a December 31st deadline to have a 2024 budget deal in place. The mayor has also fought with the council over his proposed hike to water and sewer rates, as well as the amount of overtime for the police. More than 50% of Schenectady School City School District students in grades 6 to 8 tested three or more grade levels below in math and reading in the first quarter of the 2023-2024 school year. The Gazette reports that a majority of Schenectady's grades 1 to 8 lag behind in reading and math. An Albany County judge has dismissed murder and reckless endangerment charges against Dante Mitchell, a felon turned anti-violent activist, saying his co-defendant's gun fired the bullets that fatally struck 27-year-old Shire Leggett in Cohoes in August. Mitchell still faces a felony charge for weapon possession. That's it for headlines. So on Wednesday, before those of us on the East Coast woke up, COP28 issued its final statement. 
For the first time, it said that the world needs to transition away from fossil fuels. My co-host, Mark, is the coordinator of PAWS, the local 350.org group, as well as being active in other groups and is the author of Putting Out the Planetary Fire. So I turn to Mark to ask, what is your assessment of the impact of the final COP28 agreement? Unfortunately, it's, it's pretty poor. I mean, we should remember moving into this COP um, the situation had become so dire with uh, the highest level uh, that we're aware of, of, of global warming this year, uh, extreme weather um, breaking out all over the planet, floods, heat waves, uh, massive hurricanes. Uh, it actually led the Secretary General of the United Nations to say that um, we have opened the gates to hell. Uh, due to the failure of our governments to actually take uh, effective action to reduce, um, you know, climate change. You know, there were certainly some things that people point to. Um, there was what people call in at least some money put in the table for the so-called loss and damage um, fund, basically to help um, developing countries recover from, you know, significant uh, impacts, but certainly a lot less than um, people had uh, need. Um, and the other thing was people were pushing very, very hard, people, governments, climate activists, scientists, that, you know, given if we're going to try to keep the 1.5 degrees centigrade warming, we have to stop burning fossil fuels. And so the big push was a rather mild statement that it's time to phase out fossil fuels, uh, instead, what we came out is it's time to transition away from fossil fuels. I mean, the reality is the big winners uh, at COP28 were the fossil fuel companies and then the countries that, uh, you know, rely upon export of fossil fuels for income, starting with, um, you know, the United uh, States. Um, I mean, I'll just quickly read a couple of quotes. Um, the problem with the text is that it still includes cavernous loopholes that allow the United States and other fossil fuel producing countries to keep on um, the expansion of fossil fuels. This is a pretty deadly fatal flaw in the text, which allows for transitional fuels to continue, which is code word for natural gas that also emits uh, carbon pollution. And that was from uh, Gene Sood, one of the national leaders, runs the Biological Diversity Energy Justice uh, department. And then a climate scientist that I follow, and I think has a lot of respect, one of the more progressive but also well-respected academic, uh, Professor Johann uh, Rockström uh, from the Potsdam Institute over in Germany. Um, no, the COP28 agreement will not enable the world to hold the 1.5 degree limit, but yes, the result is a pivotal landmark. The disagreement does deliver on making it clear to all financial institutions, businesses, societies, that we are now finally, eight years after the Paris Agreement, at the true beginning of the end of the fossil fuel-driven world economy. Yet the fossil fuel statement remains too vague with no hard and accountable boundaries for 2030, 2040, and 2050. A lot of greenwashing, a lot of corporate greenwashing. Uh, the lobbyists were everywhere from the fossil fuel industry. It was sort of a, I don't know, call it a flea market, but certainly a market bazaar 
um, for those seeking to profit off of climate change. So you mentioned the um, the politics around fossil fuels, that the beneficiaries are the fossil fuel industries. The president of COP28 was one of those beneficiaries. So could you go a little bit more into um, the agreement and uh, the politics and specifically where does the Biden administration stand? Well, like many uh, legal agreements, government pronouncements, uh, there's a lot of words which can sound nice on paper, but the devil's in the details and there's an awful lot um, of loopholes. And in fact, it really, you know, sort of stays some aspirational goals. We hope this occurs rather than saying we are committed to making this occur and this is how we're going to do it. Um, one of the big things was with the United States. The United States actually did support um, the call to, to phase out fossil fuels, but what they actually were doing was trying to make sure there were loopholes and they were successful um, in that fossil fuel companies would be allowed to continue to burn fossil fuels as long as they had a way of trying to pull the carbon out of the, before it went into the atmosphere. And this is what is known as, as carbon capture. And this carbon capture technology, they spent tens of billions of dollars on it. It's been going on for decades and it has never worked. And in fact, um, the uh, International uh, Energy Agency, which is as mainstream government focused as you can possibly get, you know, they even recently came out and said that uh, carbon capture is an illusion. But yet that is what the United States pushed. That's central, you know, to this agreement. Um, and, and that's a real problem. One thing I will say, there are a lot of equity issues. And, you know, for instance, um, a lot of the third world countries said, you know, the industrial north basically is the industrial revolution, burn fossil fuels for two centuries, and that's what's lifted up their economy. Now they want to shut the door so that my impoverished third world country doesn't have a path to economic development by you saying that we cannot use this cheap burning of fossil fuels, which is what your countries did to economic development. And so that's why it's so important that if we're going to tell you know these you know developing countries you have to really not follow the same fossil fuel model, we have to provide a way for them both to um, short term provide a decent standard of living for all their inhabitants and then long term be able to you know create a society which can provide uh, you know long term decent standard of living for people. And so that's considered loss and damages. Could you explain what that uh, means? Well, that's a little bit, you know, confusing, to be honest. Um, and there's loss and damages and there's uh, climate finance. And you have to follow this for a couple decades. Um, to be honest, I think most people sort of blur, blur them together. Technically, what loss and damages is supposed to be is to provide financial system to help poorer nations um, actually recover from large extreme weather events, rising sea level, extreme heat waves, uh, forest fires, crop failures and stuff. You know, it's supposed to help them rebuild the necessary physical um, and social infrastructure. And then there's climate finance, and that's more trying to make capital available, money available to the developing world, both so that they can uh, invest in uh, technologies to um, uh, 
mitigate, reduce the amount of you know greenhouse gas emissions coming up, but but also uh, adapt. Now, so this is the first time that you know loss and damages was talked about at the last COP, but you know there was some money put on the table, a pitiful amount of money. I, I literally think the United States put in under. Uh, you know, maybe 17 billion or something, and Japan put about 10 billion, and literally hundreds of billions of dollars are needed annually. And most of the money provided was uh, one-term, one-term shots, not ongoing uh, financing. The one thing that people saw as a victory was the United Arab Republic uh, put in um, 100 million dollars, as well as Germany put in 100 million dollars. And one of the big fights is that the definitions of what a developing country is comes from 30 years ago. And people are saying we need some of the more re more recently rich countries like China, like India, uh, and, and like the Gulf oil states to put money on the table. So the fact they did that um, was seen as a positive step. Okay, we're running quickly out of time. We have about 30 seconds left, but... You mentioned the German scientists out of Potsdam in Berlin, uh, who does not seem to think that we will succeed in pushing back the 1.5 degrees Celsius. What is your take on that? We've lost the 1.5 degrees. Uh, we probably might have lost two degrees. In fact, the world scientists say we're headed to three degrees, which is totally catastrophic by the end of the century. That doesn't mean you give up, though, because every 0.1 degree you know, increase and global warming has a big impact, and we have to fight both to reduce the amount of global warming that's going to take place, but also, are we going to stand together and basically try to protect everyone uh, from the ravages of, of, of climate change, or is it going to be a dog-eat-dog where the billionaires live in gated biospheres and the rest of us somehow manage to survive the loss of food and water and land? Well, thank you, Mark Dunley, for giving us a little better understanding of what took place at COP28. Well, thank you, Sina, for covering it. So for this week's Peace Bucket, Moses Nagel interviewed Trudy Quaife of Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace. And on December 5th, the group hosted, or um, Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace hosted Israeli peace activist Miko Paled at the Bethlehem Public Library. The event became a lightning rod for the current controversy about whether criticism of the Israeli government constitutes anti-Semitism. We did have an excerpt from this talk, which you can find at our website. Here's the interview with Trudy Quaif. Well, I've been involved in organizing probably 200 events over the years, many of them at the public library, either in Bethlehem or Albany, mostly Bethlehem. Before this month, this current crisis, what were the most common events that your, your group would be organizing? Well, uh, anybody that's interested in knowing what kind of work we've done, it's all documented on our website, which is at uh, BethlehemNeighborsForPeace.org. Uh, we've been hosting events uh, for about 20 years. Uh, we've covered climate change, all of the wars. Uh, that's been our main focus. We've tried to cover just about every issue you can think of related to peace and justice. And the group is mostly made up of residents of Bethlehem, right? Yes, we have a, a mailing list of, I don't know, maybe 350 people, but the active members are pretty much all from the Bethlehem area. 
it's a lot of elderly people at this point because um, most of us got into it 20 or 25 years ago. So, uh, but we've been at it a long time, and we occasionally get a new member, but we have a pretty solid core of people that have been at it for a long time. And so, what was the origin of the event last week with Miko Khaled? Well, we had had him speak once before. I think it was 2017. I think that event was at the Albany Public Library. Uh, we were all pretty impressed with what he said. He's really articulate and really speaks about uh, the issues of the Palestinian people and what they've gone through. And uh, he's a pretty credible person because he's an Israeli. He grew up in Israel. Uh, his father was a general. He was himself was in the Israeli military. His grandfather was one of the founding members of Israel. So most of us were familiar with his work. We appreciate that he's taken a pretty controversial stand against the Israeli government in their treatment of the Palestinians over the past 75 years. And uh, a lot of us were feeling pretty upset about all the events that have happened recently. And we thought, well, if we could get him to come and speak, uh, he would be, uh, you know, an excellent speaker, and a lot of people would be interested in hearing what he had to say. When he came and spoke in, I forget if he said 2017, was there a lot of controversy around that event? None at all. None at all. Uh, he came, he spoke to a crowd of, I don't know, maybe 40 people. Uh, he gave a really powerful presentation. He just laid out uh, his perspective. Uh, people seemed to really appreciate what he had to say. So we thought, well, this would be a really great opportunity to get a voice from somebody who has a, a really good perspective that's different than what you're getting in the mainstream media. When did you start to get the idea that this time was going to have a different reception, was going to be a little different? Well, it came on really suddenly, maybe a week before the event. We knew that uh, there was uh, opposition that was organizing. So I got probably 70 phone calls about the event. I, I knew that people were asking a lot of questions. Then the Bethlehem Public Library was getting a lot of calls as well. They decided to hold a public meeting and give people an opportunity to voice their concerns. So that was last Monday. I guess that would have been the fourth. I wasn't there. Several members of Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace did go, but we really didn't think there would be that much opposition. We thought, well, you know, we're a small organization. This is a small town. He's going to speak for one night at the library. But as it turns out, close to 100 people probably spoke. Um, most of them spoke against the a library allowing him to speak, but the library policy, they felt they had to let us go ahead. But this group that was uh, opposing the presentation was very vocal, very demanding. So then they showed up Tuesday night at the event, and it was clear that they were going to try to shut it down. One of the problems was that the room will only accommodate about 90 people, and probably 200 people showed up. So there was a lot involved, 
in crowd control, trying to get a, a fair way to get people in on a first-come, first-served basis and trying to make sure that everybody was safe. It was a difficult situation. Did you get an idea what the organizing force was behind the opposition? Not really. Other than that their goal was to not let him speak and to, you know, they were taunting him, they were taunting us, they were trying to stir up the crowd a little bit. They were, this one woman was wearing a Israeli Air Force t-shirt and she was taunting me, she was taunting the speaker. A couple times while he was trying to speak, they started to he, chant. He called. He like speech. called her out. He called her out. Well, in the middle he of did. The At, yeah. Talk. After she'd been taunting him, well, there were t really two of us that were trying to do crowd control. I was one of them, and she <laughs> and a uh, another person pretty much followed us around with their phones, recording everything we did or said. And uh, I think she wore that T-shirt with the, you know, with the intent of aggravating the crowd. I think it's important to say that it was clear on the video that the audience there was very diverse and clearly many Muslim people in the audience. There, was there were a lot of, you know, just seemed like all different kinds of people in a really diverse and, and large group that were there to hear the speaker. Not, I don't want to give the impression that that 200 people were there and all but. 15 of them were there because they were angry about the speaker. I don't think that was the case, right? Yeah. There, I mean, there were people there. Uh, there was a, a mother with carrying a sleeping child. I mean, it was a variety of people. The people who brought their there were people that brought their kids. Uh, I don't think they had any expectation that there was going to be any trouble. Um, but it was tense. And uh, this group that was trying to shut the program down had called the police and the police had arrived and and the people that had called them knew they were there so they immediately went to the police and tried to get the police to shut down the program which was mm. chilling to me <laughs> just i've just thought this is how you end up living in a police state when people expect the police to prevent somebody from speaking and uh, they were also putting a lot of pressure on the library staff to shut us down. Yeah. They kept telling the library staff that it was hate speech, that we were anti-Semitic. By the end of the night, the police chief was there. There were some police wearing their bulletproof vests, and uh, it looked like, oh, it really did look Orwellian. But... Um, at the end of the night, we considered it a success. Nobody had been hurt. There were no, you know, really significant incidents. But then again, last night, the library had another meeting, and those same people showed up again. <laughs> One after another, the speakers accused Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace of being anti-Semitic, uh, supporters of hate speech, a hate group, uh, promoting violence, um, they said that we didn't have any respect for Hanukkah. I mean, they had any number of complaints about us. And the library basically, to some degree, reversed their position and said that 
they are going to take action against Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace. They may shut us down. We don't know. By shut you down, you just mean not let you hold events at the library in the future? They might. They haven't said yeah. for sure what they're going to do, whether they're going to give us a suspension period or they're going to tell us we can't come back at all. They haven't said what they're going to do, but they did, to some degree, seem to be inclined to believe the people that were uh, referring to us as anti-Semitic and 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 a hate group. So they didn't. Some of those people said really things that were pretty difficult to listen to, and were clearly untrue. And uh, it was a, another very difficult situation. And uh, that's where we stand right now. And that was Moses Nagel uh, interviewing uh, Trudy Crave of uh, Bethlehem's Neighbors for, for Peace. Um, you know, one of the things I've certainly understood better uh, during this uh, whole Palestinian-Israel uh, crisis is, in fact, the difference of opinion in the Jewish community itself. Uh, and, in fact, a lot of... Jewish individuals do not support Zionism, and so therefore the accusation that people who are anti-Zionist or also anti-Jewish um, is, a, is a well, let's just say, um, not accurate. And the other thing I'll just say, one of the things actually, I guess the library stood up and said uh, that the speaker was was doing hate speech um, because he made the refrain "River to the Sea." which basically is a desire of people to reclaim the homeland of, of Palestine. And, and maybe it's what Hamas says, that they want to take the whole land over. But those people, which seems to be the majority, who want um, a one-state solution to this problem, river to the sea, is is that hope. And so it's, just, it's very perplexing, this debate over language. It becomes very Orwellian. And Hudson Mohawk Magazine will continue to provide coverage of this ongoing uh, issue. But for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 192.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And just one clarification, I want to make a correction from my prior statement with respect to a cop. When I talk about the United States giving money, I should have been saying it was around 17 million with an M, not with a B. But if you have a billion and you want to invest it and you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, coworker, or your favorite person at the bus stop. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. On Tuesday, December 12th, the Capital Region launched the 2024 campaign to pass the Unemployment Bridge Program, organized by Columbia County Sanctuary Movement. He, we hear excerpts from the event. Good morning, everybody. My name is Thomas Kearney. 
I am a co-founder of Capital Area Relief and Liberation, and I'm here with... Hello, everyone. My name is Aridia Lucas Garcia. I am the Coalition and Member Engagement Coordinator with Columbia County Sanctuary Movement. Thank you all for joining us for our 2023 campaign launch of the Unemployment Bridge Program. This week, the Funding School to Workers Coalition, which consists of hundreds of organizations, is holding campaign launches all across the state of New York, calling on a legislator and Governor Hochul to pass the Unemployment Bridge Program. Today, you will be hearing from excluded workers, elected officials, justice organizations, faith-based organizations, immigration justice organizations, and more. We've all gathered here in Albany, united in our call to pass the Unemployment Bridge Program. This program would provide unemployment compensation access to hundreds of thousands of excluded workers. Excluded workers like freelancers, self-employed workers, formerly incarcerated individuals, cash economy workers, and immigrant workers. We now want to take a moment to thank our region's elected officials. Senator Neil Breslin and Senator Michelle Hinchy, who unfortunately couldn't join us today, but who have shown their support and co-sponsored the Unemployment Bridge Program. Uh, my name is Claire Cousin. I'm a Columbia County Supervisor for the City of Hudson in the First Ward, and I'm also the co-founder of the Hudson Catskill Housing Coalition. We've been fighting to make sure that Columbia County is a place where all workers are respected and given access to the social safety net. The benefits of the uh, immigrant population in our community, um, Hudson specifically, would not be a bustling destination um, city that it has grown to be without our immigrant neighbors and friends. The work is on the backs of the people who are closest to the issues and we need to remember that. Um, the Hudson Catskill Housing Coalition played an integral part in getting Clean Slate New York passed and we have to remember that there's still a gap that exists when people return home between coming home and finding um, employment. I'm also, I sit on the board of the Reentry Columbia, so we see the disproportionate amounts of jobs available to folks and know that this Bridge the Gap program would help accommodate folks in their most vulnerable states. Some of the important workers, especially immigrant workers, are disproportionately black and brown in Columbia County and across the Hudson Valley. They do critical work and are uh, constantly left out. The goal of the Unemployment Bridge Program is to provide unemployment compensation to workers who are excluded from regular unemployment insurance. And I will fight like hell as a member of the Columbia County Board of Supervisors for these workers Woo! and push our representatives in Albany to pass the bill. I want to thank Senator Hinchy for co-sponsoring this important bill, who continues to work with us on important legislation like this, and the rest of our elected officials should follow her example. When I say worker, you say power. Worker! Power! Worker! Power! When I say worker, you say power. Worker! Power! Worker! Power! When I say excluded, you say no more. Excluded! No more! Excluded! No more! Now let's hear it for Lukey Forbes, co-founder and executive director of We Are Revolutionary. I am the executive director of We Are Revolutionary, but beyond that, I'm someone who is formerly incarcerated, I was incarcerated at the age of 15 years old. Upon being released, not only was my resume filled with employment from being incarcerated, that was my only work experience, 
is that from behind the bars is something that's really not attractive to put on a resume and really try to convey to employers. Upon being released, I was also forced into the mission, the Albany Mission Shelter, um, due to parole not accepting any of the many addresses that I provided to them. So not only was I released due with, with both of my parents deceased, I was released without real work experience. This really made it difficult for me to really find my footing in society. I am not so unique. There are so many individuals who come home with similar stories that make up our membership and people in the community. It is important that they have a lifeline. It is important that our government looks to make sure that individuals do not struggle. They, that our government enacts bills and funding and direct funding towards helping our most vulnerable community members. Individuals who are coming home from prison, who have been working inside the prisons, um, to, for them to be released from prison and not giving unemployment services as of right now, it is a disgrace of our system for them to not recognize that as work and that's solely due to the 13th Amendment categorizing these individuals as slaves. But we are not slaves. We are human beings and we deserve the same liberties and pursuits of happiness and freedom as everyone else. This is a human right. We cannot continue to have a state that excludes workers, that excludes people from being able to, to really create stability. If I was able to have access to unemployment upon my release, it would have made my transition so much more easier. This is why I stand and fight for the brothers and sisters who will be coming home to make sure that they do not have to struggle in the same way that I did, that they have access to resources that can exist if our, our, our legislative leaders are able to enact political will that really, that really invests in our communities versus just punitizing people. Thank you for your time. And I appreciate everyone for coming out and standing for this bill. 750,000 workers statewide would be covered by this program. That includes approximately 20,000 individuals right here in the Capital District. This program would also bring an economic boost to the state, including 19 million to the Capital District. This doesn't include the upwards of $75 million the Capital District would benefit from would be spent on the administrative costs of the program. This program will be a direct investment in not only our most vulnerable workers, but also in our local communities. Next, we're gonna hear from Terry Diggory with the Albany Presbytery Immigration Network and co-coordinator, Saratoga Immigration Coalition. The principle that drives the Unemployment Bridge Program is nothing new. It's long been recognized that workers who help to build our economy, from which we all benefit, deserve protection for those moments when the economy has a bump, when circumstances happen in personal lives, when they're not able, able to work. The only thing that's new about the Unemployment Bridge Program is that it recognizes a vast range of workers who currently do not have that protection. Many of these workers did get recognition, came to our attention during the
COVID pandemic. You all remember that, that expression, essential workers, right? Well, they're still essential, right? Woo! But we still don't have adequate protection. We do have the example of what happened under the COVID pandemic with the Fund for Excluded Workers, where thousands of workers were given protection during that period. We know that such a program can work. What we have to recognize is that we need this program not only in a time of collective emergency, but a time going, but, but going forward because so many workers experience emergency in their personal lives that may not receive recognition in the community. So it just makes logical sense to plan ahead, to say we need to establish a fund which is always going to be available, permanently available, to help workers in need. The money that these workers receive is obviously going to be important. But another thing that's very important is recognition. What a program like this says is, from the community as a whole, we see you. We recognize the contributions that you make to our economy and to our community. And we recognize that you deserve equal protection against the vicissitudes, the changes that occur within the economy. And through that kind of recognition, we are establishing ties to each other. We are recognizing our neighbors truly as neighbors. We're building stronger community as well as stronger economy. So let's do this, let's build together, and let's pass the Unemployment Bridge Program now. And we want to thank the Columbia County Sanctuary Movement for helping us provide access to that recording. To be clear, the goal of the Unemployment Bridge Program is to provide unemployment compensation to workers who are excluded from regular unemployment insurance because of their immigration status or because of the kind of work they do. And next, the Biden administration is proposing new restrictions that would require the removal of virtually all lead water pipes across the country in an effort to prevent another public health catastrophe like the one in Flint, Michigan. Lead pipe replacement in water systems has been a major issue locally, such as in Troy. And Mark talks with Rob Hayes of Environmental Advocates. We're talking to Bob, Rob Hayes, uh, who is the director of uh, Clean Water for the Environmental Advocates of New York. We've had uh, Rob on a couple of times to talk about various water issues, including the issue of uh, lead pipes in the uh, city of Troy. Um, but recently, the Biden administration announced that it was replacing or have a goal of replacing lead pipes within uh, 10 years, uh, of course, as much as $30 billion. Um, so, um, Rob, what, how important is this decision and, and what are some of the other things that are perhaps not making the headlines? You know, this is the most important action to get the lead out of drinking water in U.S. history. You know, lead pipes have been contaminating our drinking water for far too long, but we're thankful that the Biden administration finally said enough is enough. We're going to replace 100 percent of the nation's lead pipes, and that's going to mean healthier and happier kids for generations to come. 
Now, does this require um, congressional approval or the regulatory steps and now to have to take place? Or uh, how do they meet this 10-year uh, deadline and you know, where do they get the funding for it? These are proposed regulations right now. EPA hopes to finalize them by October of next year, so October 2024. Uh, thankfully, this doesn't require congressional approval, so they can go uh, into effect when EPA wants them to. And EPA says uh, that they've intended to set a three-year kind of implementation deadline. So that kind of 10-year clock to start replacing all the nation's lead pipes should start ticking around 2027. Um, but of course, we hope communities are gonna be much more proactive in starting this work even before then. And we know it's gonna take money to do that. You know, There are upfront costs to digging these pipes out of the ground. Uh, fortunately, there's been a lot of money made available through President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law. New York will be receiving about $500 million of that funding over the next five years. Um, but that's just, part of the funding equation here. There's also a big role for New York State to play. And that's why we're uh, urging Governor Hochul and the state legislature to invest more in lead pipe replacement in the upcoming state budget. Now, we, we mentioned lead pipe replacement, which obviously is critical, um, but does the Biden uh, proposed regs that they will actually lower the um, standards that you can have for lead in, and water? They do, yes. There's a number of other components to this regulatory package that EPA put forward, one of which is to lower the action level of lead in drinking water. So right now, uh, EPA allows water utilities to have up to 15 parts per billion of lead in their water. That's going to drop down to 10 parts per billion. Now, at the end of the day, we know that there is no safe level of lead in drinking water. Anytime it's found, it's posing a risk to human health. But we support this lower action level because that means that more more New Yorkers are going to find out if there's lead in their water, and water utilities will have to take other steps to address those elevated levels, including by improving the corrosion control chemicals that they add to the water to try and reduce lead leachage into drinking water. Um, now, the city of Troy has been working on this issue recently because there was a lot of uproar when they both uncovered that there was a lot of problems with um, you know, the service pipes, but also they have been sitting on some, some federal dollars uh, or state dollars, government dollars, and hadn't actually spent it. Is this going to impact on, on Troy at all, is it, or is Troy already you know, basically moving in the right direction? You know, Troy will be uh, uh, covered under these new regulations from EPA. So they, too, will have to meet that 10-year replacement mandate. You know, I think the good thing is, because of all the amazing local advocacy that's happened in Troy and that has pushed the city government to be more proactive on this issue, Troy is now in a much better place than many municipalities uh, in terms of setting up for getting rid of all of the lead pipes. You know, I know Troy has, I think, you know, just this year replaced over 100 lead pipes uh, in their distribution system. They hope to ramp that up. Uh, one thing that we'll be watching very closely is that the incoming mayor of Troy, Carmela Mantello, made a, a commitment during the campaign to replace all of Troy's lead pipes within her first term in four years. And so that's a promise that we'll be uh, holding her accountable to over the next couple of years. Are there other uh, communities in the Capital District where they've already looked at the issue of lead and beginning to move it or, you know, are the things that people should be doing to ask the local governments to be checking for this issue? You know, we definitely see lead pipes in almost every city across the state of New York, including here in the capital region. 
Albany, Schenectady, Watervliet, you know, all of these older industrial cities have a lot of lead pipes and they've got to start being more proactive in getting them out of the ground. Um, we do know right now that all water utilities are currently developing an inventory of all of the lead pipes in their systems that is due to state DOH and EPA by October of next year. Those inventories will be really, really critical uh, to helping people find out whether their property might have a lead pipe and how extensive this problem is in these communities. That'll help identify how much funding is needed and what's the scale of work that needs to be done to get to 100% lead pipe replacement. Anything an individual homeowner or tenant listening that they might want to do at this point in terms of, I don't know, getting their water tested or um, examining whether they can see whether their service pipes might have uh, lead in them? There's definitely a couple of things that folks across the state can be doing. You know, first, if you have access to your basement, you know, definitely go down and check to see if you have a lead pipe sticking out of your basement wall. And there's resources online about how to check uh, that pipe material. That's one of the first things you can do to identify whether you're at risk. Um, if you do have a lead pipe, we definitely recommend getting filtration uh, for the water that you're going to be drinking. You know, fortunately, we can filter lead out of drinking water on a short term basis. And so if you do have a lead pipe, you definitely want to be filtering that out of the water. Um, in some communities, they offer free lead testing as well. So you can call your local government uh, and see uh, see what resources they have available. And at the end of the day, we'd also urge you know New Yorkers across the state to contact Governor Hochul and tell her that you want her to make getting the lead out of drinking water a top priority, including by, uh, by putting at least $100 million to replace these pipes in the upcoming state budget. Now, the, the Governor Hochul, however, has been um, pretty vocal recently that with, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven billion dollar possible deficit next year, um, that uh, she's not looking to um, raise taxes, doesn't want to, for some reason, um, dip into the uh, rainy day fund, which has uh, quite a bit of money in it at this point. So, so how, at this point, Besides people calling their individual state legislators to, to speak up, uh, how, how does Hochul, you know, stand with respect to, yes, this is an exception. We need to invest, you know, uh, $100 million here. You know, the good thing is, I think the fiscal picture for the state has been improving. Uh, you know, the expected budget deficit is certainly far less than it was initially expected. And I think that outlook could even improve as the economy continues to improve and be doing fairly well. Um, so we think this is the year to really continue investments into clean water in our environment. You know, because the great thing about you know, clean water infrastructure improvements and lead pipe replacements specifically is that they're both great for public health and clean water, but they are also drivers of economic activity. You know, getting work crews out to the, on the street to replace these pipes means tens of thousands of good paying union jobs that are created. And that's going to have major economic benefits for all the communities that are doing this work to get uh, the lead out of drinking water. So we've been talking with Rob Hayes, who's uh, director of... Um clean water for the environmental advocates of New York. Are there other key water issues that, um, say, in the upcoming state budget or legislative session that environmental advocates and other water um, supporters will be looking for? There'll, there'll be a lot of action that we're hoping for uh, during the upcoming state legislative session. I'll also say, since we've been talking about uh, this new federal proposal on lead pipes, we're also expecting to see a federal uh, 
final rule on toxic PFAS chemicals early in the new year. Um, earlier this year in March, the US EPA proposed federal drinking water standards on PFOA, PFOS, and a number of other toxic PFAS chemicals, uh, which would for the first time require testing and treatment for them nationwide. We've had in New York standards on PFOA and PFOS for several years now, uh, but EPA standards are stronger than ours. And so when those are finalized in the new year, that will mean that a lot more water utilities will have to do more treatment of their water to provide cleaner water to New Yorkers across the state. So it's something we're very much looking forward to that next announcement from EPA on in the new year. And I believe uh, Environmental Advocates New York website, EANY.org. Yep, that's it. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So the Hudson Mohawk Magazine will certainly be keeping uh, tabs on how well uh, the city of Troy and its new mayor meets its uh, goal of moving from a 15-year timeline to apparently a four-year timeline. Uh, and we'll also keep tabs on how the other communities in the Capital District are responding to this initiative on lead water service pipes. And we end today's show with our peace and justice lighting of the candles. And every year, the community of North Troy gathers at Freedom Square to light candles around an evergreen tree. And Jacob Boston was there on the scene this year to record what words were being shared. The peace and justice celebration, the annual tree lighting that's put on by the Sanctuary for Independent Media, we come out in a spirit of solidarity, that we will all come together so that there will be peace and justice that will be spread throughout the land. So as we light the candle, we're just gonna say what we light the candle for, right? Everybody has different things on their hearts. Some of us may be missing our loved ones during this season. Some of us are lighting candle for hope and peace and, and nonviolence and for our communities to come together, our young people to put down the guns. So whatever it is, as I'm gonna light the first candle, right? And I'm gonna go to the right here, and then he's gonna pass it off, and we're gonna each go around, and we're just gonna ask if, if you feel inclined that you say what you're lighting your candle for, okay? Before we do that, we're gonna ask um, our pastor right here, Pastor Barbara, if he would just say a prayer for us, and we'll go, go ahead and start with our candle lighting. Thank you. We come today praying for those that are in countries where war is going on and where so much mm. trouble is in the land. We yes. pray for our young people, Father God, all the children that gathered around today. We ask you, Father God, to continue to bless them, Father God. Bless each and every one that's in this circuit today. For when they asked him what was the greatest commandment, he said that you should love the Lord God and that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I would like this counter for love. I like this kind of remember of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but what He done for us. And the greatest commandment that He left is that we love one another. When everything else is going down, love will stand in the midst of it all. I'm lighting my candle for peace all around the world. I like this candle for all the pain, the tears, and the chaos that was of my past, because it gave me the strength to do the job I do today. Father, Lord, it's me. I'm here standing in the need of prayer. Lord, we ask for peace in North Troy and North Central Troy. Lord, we ask that children put their guns down, Lord. We ask for a new salvation, for a new beginning. Peace here, peace
peace in our country, peace in the city. No more shots at synagogues, Lord. We ask, Lord, for peace in this world and in our nation. Lord, teach our children about love. Teach us to love and understand and respect each other. Lord, we ask for a new beginning. It is me, Lord, it is us, it is our community. We ask for hope, peace, and a new beginning. Peace, justice, and equality for all people on our incredible planet. And may they all spread that peace, justice, and equality to all those they meet. I pray also for world peace and love and care and generosity spreading all around the world, wrapping around us. Um, healing for people's hearts. That's it. That's it, yeah, that's it. Could be one thing, could be whatever. I'm praying that even though we are all individuals, that we have the wisdom to know that we're all one. Meaning, if we hurt each other, we're hurting ourselves. If we help each other, we're helping ourselves. I'm lighting this candle for love, peace, and happiness, and truth and righteousness throughout the land. I'm lighting this candle for peace, love, hope, and better futures for all of our children. Ah, there we go, beautiful. But lighting it for anything? You got anything to say? Well, I lighting it for family that they stay safe and that I stay safe too. I'm just lighting this for freedom, justice, and equality for all. Yeah, for peace, love in the entire world and the memory of your loving Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm lighting this camera. Um, I mean, this, this <laughs> I'm lighting this candle as um, a Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian, and a Sufi, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and a ceasefire on the streets here now. Peace on Earth. Calling for health, harmony, happiness, healing in Lansingburg, the world, and the universe. Why do you light the candle? I light this candle for life, the things that make the world the world, the the plants that like trees that give us air, the animals that give us food, and of course, and bacteria that make the our soil for, fertile, and of course the the apes that made us exist. Like, so I light this candle for life. I light this candle for peace and understanding. I light this candle for music. I light this candle for the children of the world and a lifelong love of learning. I light this candle for gratitude. Um, too many times this year I've been reminded how precious each day is. Uh, and I light it for joy. I hope everyone finds a, a joyous moment in their day. I light this candle for community, for the, for the strength to stand together as community, working together for peace and justice, for equality, for whenever we need each other in this community. Thank you, Jerry. I light this for, uh, for healing, for the children, and for the earth. 
I light this candle for an end to all wars and for healing for all who need it. Oh, we are going to need a light over here, Jerry. The wind, but it's all good. I'll take it over the freezing cold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I said. It's me. I light this candle for indigenous people around the world, from the Palestinians to the Mohicans. And I light this candle for our friends, the crows, who've been uh, flying overhead and the trees that they call their home. And I light this candle for Megan Marone, whose spirit is with us today. I light this candle for community because I really believe that together, if we stick together, we can overcome any challenges that we face. I light this candle, there's a lot of love here tonight, we need to continue that love, unity, and one tree. I like this candle for peace and respectfulness from now on out, and praying that the war will stop. God loves you, and God will always give you the right thing to do. I like my candle for love. I light my candle for peace and love. I like this candle for everything that everybody has said, that the Lord blesses be the light of their life. That God continues to hold you and love you and what your desire your heart is, that God said it shall be. I lit my camera for unity and peace. For freedom and harmony. Okay, peace freedom and right. harmony. You got yours, Jay? I like my candles to peace, love, and, and hope. Peace, peace love, and hope. Peace on earth, goodwill to all Amen. men. That's what they said. Mm -hmm. And even though this candle light may go out, <laughs> never let the light in your heart be extinguished. Amen. 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 I once was lost, but I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So Jacob Boston will be bringing you more from last week's Peace and Justice Celebration uh, later uh, this week. I'll note this Sunday I'm participating in my annual Yule celebration around the bonfire at a friend's house. Yule is celebrated by Wiccans and many other pagans in the Northern Hemisphere on the winter solstice. And we also want to wish all our listeners a happy Hanukkah. And that's our show. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Basile Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Engineer tonight was Joan Eason. Uh, we want to thank all our volunteers to help with tonight, including Moses Nagel and the uh, Columbia County Sanctuary Movement, as well as Jacob, Jacob Austin. Um, if you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.